Hi, Brett Johnson here, former United States most wanted cyber criminal. Now good guy. Or as the United States Secret Service called me, the original internet godfather. Now there is a whole story behind that, but we don't have time for that. Because right now, it's time for the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, The Kindness of Others, when we come back. All right, we are back to the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, The Kindness of Others. Wait a second, Brettie. That doesn't sound like a cybercrime, cybersecurity episode at all. Kindness of others. Okay, you're right. You're right. It's not. It's not, but you'll notice the name of the show is The Brett Johnson Show. Means I can talk about a little bit more just cybercrime and cybersecurity. Sometimes I'll get a little personal. Like I said in one of the last episodes I did, sometimes it's therapy time. Now, I'm not saying we're going to go through a whole show of therapy. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Why don't you tune in? Go ahead and watch the show or listen to it if we're on podcast land by the time you get around to listen to it. And I will try my best. I'll give it the old college try. You know, that seven-year bachelor attempt. I'll give it the old college try to tie this episode into cybercrime, cybersecurity. Actually, I think I can. I think I can. I think it's a natural progression. So we'll see. But what I, the reason I'm doing the show today, those who have heard me speak before, I've, I've talked about it at conferences. I've spoke of it in interviews. I think I've even talked about it on this show. My dad, my dad is dying. My dad was, uh, my dad is a very, very good man. He went through a time in his life where he forgot that he was a good man. But my father is a very good man. Um, he's got a heart condition. And uh, the doctor wanted to go in, fix it. <laughs> and my dad was like, what happens if you don't fix it? And the doctor said, well, you know, if we don't fix it, uh, you know, we can't, uh, can't promise you anything, man. You know, unless it's a, if you have a heart attack. Which you could have if you have a heart attack and there's not a defibrillator. Well, you know, you're probably done for. And then the doctor looks at him and says, but I want you to understand uh, that's not a bad way to go. Well, my dad took that as gospel. That's not a bad way to go. My dad's like, well, I don't know what the thought process was. My dad was probably like, well, shit, that's not a bad way to go. I've already lived my life. Let's go. So he tells the doctor, yeah, well, you ain't cutting on me. And my dad was telling me this. I, I went to visit him. You know, I, my dad told me I have the heart condition. I, I went down immediately to visit him. This has been a few months ago. Went down immediately to visit him. And I asked him, I, he hadn't told me that he wasn't going to have the procedure done. So I asked him, I was like, uh, so you getting it done? When are you getting it done? And he looks at me, he's like, I'm not. And he proceeds to tell me that story. And when he tells me that, it clicks. I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, and, and as I, as I've gotten older, I've started to understand that as well. You know, you, you reach a point where you figure that your life is complete. And my father has had a very, very full life. He was a captain in the U S army helicopter pilot traveled the world. He has, uh, he's from Eastern Kentucky. That's an adventure in and of itself. He was married to my mother. That's an adventure in and of itself. He's, he's, and that's why I said he, he had forgotten that he was a good man. 
you know, during that uh, time with my mom, he was a victim of abuse just as much as me and my sister were. And he had forgotten during that time that he was a good man. And it took, I think it took him a while to remember that. But my father is truly a, a very good man. This is not, I mean, I'm going to talk about my dad some today, but the reason I'm doing the show is my dad, he calls me, or I call him a couple weeks ago. Actually, it's been about four weeks ago. And he tells me my stepmom. Now, the last time that I had seen my stepmom up until a few days ago, the last time I had seen my stepmom had been, I don't know, October, November of last year. And it's now February, all right? February 8th, 20th, I think is what today's date is. So it had been a while. So I called my dad and I was like, how are you doing? He's like, well, good. He said, Pat's really bad off. That's my stepmother, Patricia Pat. And I was like, well, what's going on? What well, turns out that the woman, like I said, today's, today's date is the 21st, February 21st. It turns out that the woman has not had anything to eat since January 3rd. To this day, she's still not had anything to eat since January 3rd. Today is February 21st. Now, she's, she's in her 80s. And um, not only hasn't had anything to eat, but she is subsisting on just a couple of sips of liquid every few days. You know, whether it be milk or iced tea, sweet tea, that kind of stuff. And my dad was telling me, you know, she's, uh, she's going to die. So I told my dad, I, I was trying to get down there a few weeks ago, and I wasn't able to because everyone in the house got COVID, Omicron, which I guess they come up with these freaking names for the COVID variants in order to try to scare you more. So, you know, since Delta didn't really scare anybody, nobody really gave a damn that something was called Delta, they came up with the name of Omicron. Like a transformer, like a Decepticon. Now you have to worry about Omicron. Where is the Allspark? Tell us. So they came up with Omicron and everyone in the house got the damn thing. I was patient zero and I gave it to everyone else because guess what? I'm in Alabama and we don't give a damn about masks or social distancing or anything else. Now that, that I want you guys to know, I am fully vaccinated. I am. I went to get... Ah, I went to get the booster. I walked into the pharmacy. I was like, hey, I'm here to get the booster. Pharmacist looks at me. He's like, well, now the only one we got is the Johnson and Johnson. And I looked at him. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoop, doop, doop. I don't want that Johnson and Johnson crap. That's basically the you go of vaccines. And the pharmacist looks at me. He's like, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. So that told me right there that I needed to wait, but within a week, ha, I've got the Omicron. And then my wife, my youngest stepson got it as well. Brendan had already had COVID, my, my oldest stepson. So I couldn't get down to Florida to visit my stepmother. We got over it. I called my dad uh, this past week, last, last Monday. I called him and I was like, hey, How's everything going? How you doing? He's like, good. He's like, Pat is really bad off. He said, uh, you know, hospice is coming twice a week now. The chaplain is here every day. Um, she's just, she's bed bound. And I told my dad, I was like, I'll be there as soon as I can. Well, as soon as I could get there was Friday, this past Friday, three, three days ago. And uh, I, I went there. I went there. My wife, Michelle, went with me. 
got there and my dad's pretty bad off. He's, he can, he can get around. I mean, okay. He's healthy for a man that's liable to die of a heart attack at any point in time. And, and he can't really walk very well. And he walks kind of like Tim Conway did in the old Carol Burnett show. You know, that's my dad. Cause he's got neuropathy that goes up to his hips, man still drives every day, but he's got neuropathy. So he can't feel anything in his legs. So he has to be careful about how he walks. So I went to visit him and, um, he, he told me that Pat, my, my stepmother, was sleeping about 23 hours a day, and she's dying of Alzheimer's. Now, this is a woman. Her entire family has died of Alzheimer's. She has lived her, she lived her entire life. She's still alive. She has lived her entire life scared that she's going to get Alzheimer's and die. And it turns out she's got Alzheimer's and she's dying. She's, she's probably going to pass away within the week. So it hadn't, it hadn't really hit me, you know, it, ha it hadn't. And uh, so I, I take my dad out, um, Pat's in there asleep. I don't go in there quite yet. I was talking to my dad, figuring out, you know, talking about um, logistics of everything because he's the only one in Florida. Uh, he doesn't have anybody else there once Pat passes away. And I was like, you know, hey, you know, you can come up to uh, Birmingham, live with us. I don't want you to be alone. You can live with us. And he's like, well, my, my brother in Kentucky offered the same thing. And I was like, and I told him, I was like, well, I don't think that you need to uh, to be living down here by yourself. I mean, we will, we'll, I want you with me because he's my dad. And I love the man and I want to make sure he's all right. I've not got to spend a lot of time with the man throughout my entire life. So uh, we were talking about that and I took my dad out to, uh, to pick up a prescription for my stepmother. They're, they're giving her a, um, the, only, the only pain she's going through right now. She, uh, she has a dry cough and it makes her a bit sick at her stomach. So they gave her some anti-nausea meds that also helps her sleep. So we went to pick that up, came back. The chaplain was there when we came back and we all went back to, uh, to visit Pat. I, I did my my dad and the chaplain went initially, then the chaplain called me and my wife back and we went back and, and there is, there's my stepmom in the bed. She has lost, um, I guess she's probably about 80 pounds right now. Very bad off, but, but seems to be peaceful. And, uh, she wakes up and she didn't know me. The only person she knows, and that's, that's common with Alzheimer's. I've never encountered it before, guys. So I want you to understand it's new to me. I know it. I know it happens. But until that happens to you, you don't really get it. So she didn't know me. What she said was, the only thing she knew about me, my dad says, you know, that, that's my son. That's your stepson. He's telling her that's, that's Brett. That's Brett and, and Pat. She's got it in her eyes. She's a bit scared. She doesn't really know who I am. You can tell she doesn't know who I am. But the only thing that she remembered was, is uh, she said, oh, yes, he's sweet. That got me. That got me. So as I am right now, I started welling up, getting emotional about it. And it started to hit me about the influence that this woman has had in my life. And I want to explain that. I was born in, most people know, you know, lifetime criminal until I was given the opportunity to turn things around. 
lifetime criminal. I, I was born in Eastern Kentucky. My mother was a criminal. My father became the enabler. That's that point in time that he forgot that he was a good man. He became the enabler in the family. He didn't really, I, I think that when you're a victim of abuse, that it's like the frog in boiling water. You don't know what's happening until you're already cooked. I think my dad, he came from a very good family, a very loving family. And when he got involved in a relationship that was extremely emotionally, mentally, verbally, and physically abusive, that he didn't really know how to cope with that. And he was, he coped with that for many, many years until that marriage ended. So I've learned to forgive my father and understand that he also was a victim of abuse. He was the only other adult in the household. So I, there is that responsibility. Um, I've, t I've spoke about that before. I think that, you know, we have, we live in a country where, where many, many kids, children are victims of abuse. And uh, too many times it's allowed to happen. You know, the teachers see it, friends, parents of other children see it, the other spouse in the relationship sees it, and they don't, they don't reach out and save or try to save or do anything for that child. Now, I understand, to me, I understand why that happened with my father. It, it still, still bothers me, but I've forgiven the man for that, all right? The point I'm trying to make is about my stepmother. I hadn't, um, those who have heard me talk, and I'll just recap because there will be people that listen to this show that don't know some of my background. All right. Now, I've not told my background on this show yet. I've not went through the bio, but ah, sometime I'll do that. All right. But I'm from Eastern Kentucky, and Eastern Kentucky is one of these areas like the panhandle of Florida, parts of Louisiana or Texas, parts of other parts of the, of the world, of the planet. That if you're not fortunate enough to have a job, you may be involved in some sort of scam, hustle, fraud, whatever you want to call it. I imagine that's what a lot of people in Nigeria and Ghana are like. My mom, Eastern Kentucky, my mom was basically the captain of the entire fraud industry. No crime, too big or too small. At one point, she steals a 108,000-pound Caterpillar D9 bulldozer. That's a big bulldozer. Another point, she slips and falls at convenience stores. She tries to sue the owner. We had a neighbor she acted as a pimp for. I think I've said this before. That's my mom. So I grew up in that type of uh, situation. The first decent person that I met was when I was 16. What had happened was um, it's it's hard to... It's hard to, for me to really illustrate the level of abuse that me and my sister went through as children. I mean, it's, it's my sister at one point tries to commit suicide. Um, me, I start, I think I mentioned, I didn't mention it in the show. I mentioned it on the Lex Fridman show. We went through a lot of abuse as children. We went through, um, you know, my mom would constantly tell me and my sister that she had given up. And we were young. I mean, you know, five, six, tell us this kind of stuff. That she had given up her life for us. That um, she had sacrificed herself for us. That she was going to leave and not come back sometime. That uh, we would find her dead in a ditch. You know, things like that. She would uh, 
when she cheated on my father, when she left my dad and she started to see men, she would often come home and try to get me riled up by trying to tell me how the men had tried to rape her to see, to see if I would react. And I would react because that's what a son does because he's supposed to try to protect his mom. So I would react and I would, the guy was around, I'd try to kill the son of a bitch. So um, that was my childhood, the beatings, drug use around, negligence, leaving me and my sister home for days at a time. Um, my, I, I'm, not, I'm not religious, and that's because of the way my mom tried to manipulate me and my sister with religion. I, I've talked about this before. She, uh, I don't know, I was eight, nine, Denise, a year younger. She calls me and Denise in the living room one night. My dad's at work calls me and Denise in the living room one night. She's got two chairs set up facing each other. Got incense burning all the lights out, candles lit in the living room. You know, it's looking all like spooky light. That's what she was intending. And she's like, come in, come in. I need to tell you something. And me and Denise are like, oh shit, what is this? So we go in and mom sits us down and she proceeds to tell us that she has sold her soul to Satan so that me and Denise can have a good life. And the deal is, is that once me and Denise graduate college, the Lord Satan will call her home, and that will be the end of it. But she wanted us to know that she, that, that she was willing to do that. But we had to prove ourselves, and the way we proved ourselves is we, we spent hours. One of us would sit in the chair. My mom would sit opposite, and she would say, I'm going to let Satan come out through my eyes. You are supposed to think happy Jesus thoughts or whatever, however she worded it. We were supposed to think happy Jesus thoughts and not let Satan into us. And she would spend hours doing this with us, hours. There was that. There was um, there was an incident. And my mom, I'm a horrible manipulator, horrible, horrible abuser. She would, uh, I remember one instant, her and my dad were laying in bed. She calls me and Denise. We were young children, young. We had, my mom hadn't left my dad yet at this point. So it was before we were 10 or 11. She calls me and Denise into the bedroom. They've got a king size bed there. They used to lay on the bed. And they'd read and, or argue or what have you. Well, they were arguing today. So she calls this day, they were arguing. She calls me and Denise into the bedroom. And my dad, his fam famous last words for my dad were, please, Carolyn, don't. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. Over and over like that. My dad said that more than anything else that I remember as a child. Well, this time he was saying those words. She calls me today. She's like, shut up, Ray Jane. She calls me today's over to the side of the bed. And she used to smoke these long, more menthol cigarettes. These long brown cigarettes came in a green, green wrapper, British green wrapper. And um, she calls us over. She's smoking the cigarette. And... Um, She's she. I'm standing closest to her. Denise is standing behind me because I was a protector. I was I was a little older. That's my sister, so I got to look out for. Her. Things going to happen. It's going to happen to me first. So I always took the took the lead. So I told my sister. I, yeah, I didn't tell her, but I was I was in front of her. So I was up closest to my mom, and my mom's looking at me, my me and Denise, and she's like, "You know, mommy loves you, don't you?" And we're like, "Yes, mom." You know I would do anything for you, don't you? Yes, mom. I'm going to show you how much I love you. So she 
puffs the cigarette, holds out her arm, and she pretends, here's the thing, she pretends to burn herself. Now, no, she doesn't really burn herself. She pretends to. She's sitting there acting like she's touching it to her skin, writhing on the bed, screaming like, oh, I love you, I love you. I'm looking at it meanwhile, and I and it's clear. It's clear to see that the cigarette's about an inch, inch and a half away from her skin. As a child, how do you react to that? Well, as a child, I'm sitting there thinking like, well, shit, she must not love us too much. She's not even burning herself. That's a screwed up way to think about things, but that's what you do as a child. My mom was a horribly abusive person. I didn't meet my first, uh, as I said earlier, I didn't meet my first decent individual until I was 16. And what happens is, like I said, Denise, at one point, she tries to commit suicide. She she was she got out of the household before I was able to. She tries to commit suicide. Me, I got to the point that the first instant children can't cope with that type of abuse. They don't have the tools to do that. The adults are supposed to protect you. They are supposed to help you navigate the world in a healthy manner and show you the right way to go about living your life. I did not have that. I did not have the tools to cope with any of the abuse to which we were subjected. So the first real thing that I started, to, that, that it became evident that I had a problem, and I didn't know that until I was in my 40s. I started, I would, the, my mom and dad would be gone and I would urinate on the floor, kind of like the big Lebowski carpet pissers, rug pissers. That rug really tied the room together, did it not? So I would, I would catch them gone and I would take a leak. <laughs> uh, I didn't know why I did that. I had no idea why I did that. So I would just uh, catch them gone. I, I, I didn't speak about that for 40 years. For 40 years. And what caused me to speak about that? I turned my life around. I was given the opportunity to turn my life around. Took it. Started talking on stages to, 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 to crowds, cybersecurity and cybercrime crowds. And I got it in my head. I was like, you know, if I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life, if I'm going to be talking to crowds, I'm going to make sure that I'm telling the truth and that I try to learn something new about myself every single time. I'm on stage, and I'm like that today. I said in the last episode, I use my in-person appearances, my time on stage, to also have a therapy session for me. I get the stuff out. I'm very good about I know my cybersecurity and cybercrime, but you also get that that a lot of the uh, a lot of the journey that I'm going through and the battle that I'm going through, you get get to hear that because that's real. It matters. It matters. That human element matters. So I get it out. And uh, I, I told the crowd, I don't even know what crowd it was, but I told the crowd about, uh, about that abuse and about how, you know, I would catch the mom and dad gone and I would do a big Lebowski, become a carpet pisser. And uh, I had a lady that came up to me after my presentation. And she's like, uh, she's like, thank you so much for sharing that. And I was like, 
yes, ma'am. And she was like, because uh, I had said it during the presentation that I had no idea why I did it. And she said, uh, she, tell, she comes up to me. She's like, thank you so much for sharing. I was like, yes, ma'am. And she tells me that she used to work with abused children. And that what I did was not uncommon, that it happens, that it was the only, that, that, that for a child undergoing that type of abuse, the only way they can exhibit control is to do something like that. That's the only control you've got. It's the only control you've got, so you piss the carpet. So that was the first instance of the abuse really affecting me. The next real instance, of course, my mom leaves my dad. And we go through, me and Denise go through absolute hell. Absolute and total hell. When she does that, she used to, uh, she, we moved back to Eastern Kentucky. I was 10, my sister Denise, nine. My mom, I don't know how old she was, older, she was the adult. She used to, we, we moved in. My grandfather had, he had a house and he had raised the house up and built apartments under the house. And we lived in one of those apartments under the house. And, and Paul, my grandfather was absolutely certifiably insane and not a good man. As a matter of fact, he did not become a good man until he was almost dead. He gets cancer. He goes blind. He goes through all this other stuff. And at that point, he starts to, um, to try to make amends for a lot of the harm that he caused. This is a man who uh, would chase us around the house with a knife, with a, with a, with a club, with a hose, literally with a hose. He would uh, fire off weapons in the house. This is a man who would do this stuff. He, uh, he would abuse his wife, did abuse his wife. He would, as we lived downstairs, me and my sister, remember I, my mom would leave us for days at a time. We were not allowed to eat upstairs. Me and Denise didn't have any food downstairs in that apartment. We were not allowed to come upstairs and eat. If we did try, they would bitch about it and make fun of us. If we tried to take a bath, we were allowed one, a bath once a week, and we were allowed to bathe in an inch of water. Anything more than that, and it was absolute hell. That was, that was our lives. So the first instant of me, you know, having a problem with the abuse of, of things just not going right with Brett was the carpet pisser. The next instant, like I said, my mom leaves. At age 15, I had been talking to my, my dad was in Panama City. He was uh, dating Pat, my stepmother. Remember, the story is about Pat. He was dating my mom, my stepmom, Pat. And um, I really thought that I was going to uh, go and live with my dad. I hadn't even thought, of, I got to be honest, I hadn't thought about my sister. I hadn't, I just, uh, I thought I was going to go live with my dad. So I'd been calling him and everything, and it was, uh, I forgot what time of year, I think it was around April or May of 85, and um, I was 15 years old. Return of the Jedi had been re-released. Back then, they used to re-release films every now and then, and everyone would load up and go, especially if it was a Star Wars film, and Return of the Jedi had been re-released, 
And me and my cousins were going to go see that movie. All right. Um, I used to go out on, it was a Sunday. I used to go out and um, call my dad, you know, every Sunday, see how he was doing and everything. And I call my dad this Sunday and he tells me that he and Pat are getting married and that basically, you know, those hopes that I had of, of going to live with my dad and things being all right, not going to happen. So what ends up happening, the way that story ends is I, uh, I end up getting into an elevator and I beat the hell out of a woman. I, I, uh, back then I didn't know why, but I, uh, I attacked a woman. I, I was charged with first degree assault, spent three years and, uh, not three years, spent three months in a juvenile facility. Ah, sorry, not a juvenile facility. The, in, Perry, in Perry County, Kentucky, where I was at, they didn't have a juvenile facility. So I spent three months in solitary confinement, go to, uh, to trial, plead guilty, and um, the judge sentences me to, uh, he, he wants me to have, it's time served and have a psychological evaluation. So I go up to Louisville, Kentucky to a uh, children's hospital for an evaluation. I was 30 or 60 days up there. They let me out, and uh, I was supposed to have counseling, to which my mom was like, ah, you don't need counseling. Ah, you're all right. So there's a whole story behind that about everything that happened and the way that uh, I met that first decent individual at age 16. Because what happens is, is I ended up switching schools. I was allowed in one school in that county. And um, I excelled. This is a singles teacher, my, uh, Carol Combs was her name. She takes me under her wing and I excelled. I did really well under that woman because she, she was the first decent individual that I had met in my entire life. Took 16 years to get to that point. 16 years. And she was the first decent person that I met and I excelled under that woman's tutelage. I did. I, I did really well. And then I went right back to crime after high school because of a unfortunate series of events the uh, there's not a day that goes by that i don't think about me doing that to that to, to that woman in that elevator you know i was uh, i just beat her i just lashed out and beat the woman up back then i didn't know why spent years trying to figure out why and it's um, it's that cognitive dissonance is what it is you know and and Turns out she looked a lot like my mom, a lot. And I was, it was Brett Johnson just snapping and lashing out. And uh, I hurt somebody badly. I've not touched anybody since that point. Not that that matters. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It matters what you did. I've, every single day I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about that and have true regret of that. But what happens is, is um, remember the stories about Pat, my stepmom. So I, I didn't, of course, I go off to be a cyber criminal, but first a fraudster, a scammer, because that, everybody on that side of my mom's family, they were criminals. So I grew up in that environment. And as I grew up in the environment, I got more and more involved in those criminal activities, you know, drug trafficking. My mom was a pimp at one point, um, illegally mining coal charity fraud, insurance fraud, forging documents. I grew up 
knowing how to do all that, learning how to do all that. So I branched off on my own and that branching off on my own ends up with me at the top of the cybercrime heap. I'm the guy that actually developed a lot of the online frauds and cybercrimes that are still in play today. I'm not only the guy who did that, I'm the guy who developed the platform that cybercrime operates on today. That's why I'm called the original internet godfather. Of course I go to prison. Of course I do. Now, during all this time, I had never met my stepmother, Pat. I didn't meet my stepmother until I got out of prison, until I got out of prison. That was uh, 2011. I get out of prison. My dad, he picks me up. We, he takes me to the halfway house. And uh, the next weekend, I meet my stepmom, Pat. And uh, she, she, she did nothing but talk nice about, about me and, and to me and, you know, embraced me and uh, was telling me how much she loved me and told me how much my dad had always talked about me and, uh, you know, wanted to, uh, wanted to make sure that I was okay and everything else. So that's, that's my first interaction with my stepmom, Pat. I get out of the halfway house after, I don't know, two or three months in the halfway house. And I, I get to go, go to Panama City. I was in Tallahassee, Florida at the halfway house. Then they cut me loose and I'm allowed to live with my dad in Panama City, Florida, my dad and my stepmom. So I'm living there and I, I get a job um, as I'm on paper, you know, at the halfway house. The first job I get is driving a taxi, which... I was only able to keep for a few months because you can drive a taxi without, without a taxi license for a few months. Uh, they won't give felons taxi licenses in Florida. So I, I had to quit the job after that. But the initial job I had was driving a taxi. And uh, that's when I really, the thing about when you get out of prison, you've been locked up a while and you want to get out and do shit. <laughs> you don't want to be, you don't want to be under anybody's thumb. You were just under the federal government's thumb and all those guards' thumbs for years. You want to get out and spread your wings. Well, Pat was, I, I didn't appreciate it at that point in time. I do now. For the past few years, I've appreciated it. But back then, Pat was, um, she lived her entire life. This is a woman who, at age nine, she starts to work. Okay. At age nine, because her, stepmother tells them to get out of the house, her and all the kids to get out of the house and don't come back until they found a job. So at age nine, Pat starts to work. And this is a woman who worked hard her entire life and lived her entire life, her entire life, always telling the truth and always doing the right thing, regardless of who it might hurt or the consequences involved of doing those things. You know, it's easy. I'm going to tell you guys, it's easy. It's easy to say, just tell the truth. It's easy to say, just do the right thing. It's easy to say it. It's really difficult to do it. There's a difference between saying something and doing it. And Pat lived her entire life always telling the truth, and always doing the right thing. That is hell when you're just out of prison and you're not fully reformed like me at the time. 
so I, uh, we butted heads a lot, a lot. Um, I had a curfew and I would not obey the curfew sometimes and I would get it until it became evident that, hey, I need to leave, okay? I mean, I had it made there, but I just, um, I didn't know. It was like when, when I worked with the Secret Service, I had two outstanding human beings and Bobby Joe, uh, Bobby Joe Kirby and Brad Smith, they were the lead officers, lead agents there in South Carolina for my investigation. They were outstanding human beings and they wanted to help me, but I was not ready for that. Same thing with Pat. She wanted to help me. She had her rules. And this is a woman again who uh, she retired. She went on to work for the school system in Florida, retired not once, but twice from that school system. Spent that in her entire tenure in school was making sure the kids, she, she taught Sunday school for decades. Um, her entire tenure, her entire life was about doing the right thing and never telling a lie, no matter how small, no matter how big. This woman lived her life by that. I didn't appreciate that until I was able to turn my life around. Now, the last episode of the Brett Johnson show, I talked about how I am the guy that will say what needs to be said. If no one else will say it, you can count on Brett Johnson. I'll say it. If, you know, hey, you guys don't want to upset somebody. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell the truth. Consequences be damned if it hurts your feelings. Sorry, it's the truth. Because getting it out is going to help protect a hell of a lot more people than just your feelings. All right, there's a reason I talk about ID me. There's a reason I talk about Facebook. There's a reason. Because people need to be protected. People need to know this stuff. You don't say it. People tend to think, oh, everything's all right. No, not everything's all right. Throughout our industry, our cybersecurity industry, I see, I told you I'd start to tie it into cybersecurity. Throughout our cybersecurity industry, most companies and organizations are outstanding. Some are not. You know, I, I did an episode on Zelle fraud. There's an issue with that. There's an issue when the banks won't look out for their customers the way they need to. There's an issue with that. And unless someone starts to speak up about it, nothing will change. So it's important to talk about it. It's important to tell the truth. Well, where I get, I didn't realize it until I, I was standing there in that bedroom. And I looked down at my stepmom and she's dying and it hits me just how much of an influence. I didn't even know the woman that many years, just how much of an influence the woman has had on me. When I turned my life around, I hadn't really spoke to her or anything else. We ended, I moved out of the house because I could not obey her rules. I moved out of the house and I didn't really speak to her. I go back to prison. I come back out and I'm able to turn my life around because I had people that reached out and helped me. I relied on the kindness of others. I, I had people that reached out and helped me. And I was given that opportunity to turn my life around and I took it. And when I've turned my life around, Pat, my stepmother, had nothing but kindness and goodwill toward me. She always fawned over me. She always told me how proud she was of me. Of me. Was always, was always positive. Telling me how proud she was, 
how happy she was, how, how much good I was doing in the world. And I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if I'm doing good or not. I know I'm doing a hell of a lot better than I used to. All right. I'm trying to do, I'm trying to become a good person. And I think I'm a much better person than I used to be. But that was my stepmom. She, uh, she was just constantly being positive about things. Oh, we are so proud of you. We're so, you are doing outstanding work. You are truly helping other people out. So here this woman is that I didn't, I didn't know for that many years. That's in front of me, and she, it's evident that she's passing away. Like I said, she's going to pass away within the week. I have no doubt about that, no doubt. And it's hitting me how much of an influence she has been on my life. And it's hitting me how, 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 how someone like this, when they pass away, the world becomes a worse place. We as a people are not better off because people like her die. We are worse off. She is known throughout the county. And it's a big county. It's Panama City, Bay County. She is known throughout the county by individuals whose, whose lives she has improved. Throughout, people love the woman. Very well known. And it hits me as, as I'm sitting there watching this woman pass away how much she has affected my life. And I wanted to talk about that today. I wanted to talk about, you know, we as a society, as a society, and there is a, there is a cybersecurity, cybercrime connection to all this. But we as a society, we are a society of individuals. We have been taught to look after ourselves. We have been taught, you know, we come first, worry about yourself. And, you know, secure yourself. That's that siloed security. If you're looking at a business or a vertical, you know, each organization believes in, well, we're going to protect ourselves. And if everyone protects themselves, everyone's better protected at the end of the day. Well, that's bullshit. It is. This siloed security approach is horrible. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Meanwhile, criminals are exchanging and sharing information. They help each other every day. And last time I checked, the criminals were winning this ball game. I mean, it's a blowout. It's a blowout. Just ask anybody that's looked at stimulus fraud through the pandemic. Criminals are winning this game, and they're winning it by a large, large margin. It's like it's like criminals are Alabama, and the good guys are Vanderbilt, and it's a football game. Yeah, so it's a blowout. So it's it's. Um, I started to think about that, you know, the, the help that we get from others and that we need from others. You know, I've, I've spoken about this before. The only reason that I was able to turn my life around, yes, I wanted to turn my life around, but the only reason that I was able to turn my life around was because of the help, the kindness that I received from others that I could not, that I could not and cannot ever repay. I can look out for other people. But I can never repay those people who, who looked out for me, who gave me that opportunity. I can't. I can never repay that. What I can do is I can show them that, hey, your faith in me, the way that you believed in me and, gave, and helped give me this chance, I can show you that that was 
that 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 your faith was was well put that it was not given in vain that i'm going to make the most out of it and i try to do that every single day all right so i'm i'm sitting there watching my my stepmom and she's the chaplain is praying is talking to her first and this woman She's talking about children. Now she's got Alzheimer's. She's in the late stages of Alzheimer's. She doesn't know me. The only person that she knows is my father. They've been together over 30 years. She knows my father. And he's sitting there, he, you know, the man's a strong man. And he's just, can I do anything for you? Can I do anything for you? Honey, do you need anything? She knows my dad. She doesn't know me. She knows I'm sweet. That's the only thing she knows. That's the only thing she remembers. Oh, yeah, he's the sweet one. She doesn't know me, though. She only remembers that. For those in the cybersecurity industry, that may surprise you. Some of you to know that, hey, this guy could be sweet. We thought he was an asshole. Well, I can be an asshole, and I am often an asshole. But I'm a sweet asshole sometimes, too. So I'm watching this woman die, and she's sitting there talking about children, talking about woe unto you and to those who abuse children is what she's talking about, how, how we have to help protect kids. And it occurs to me, she spent her entire life doing that in the school system, in Sunday school, even me as an adult, when I got out of prison, she was trying to help me. And it did, it did have an influence. It took a while, but it had a, a huge impact on me. So I started to think about, you know, we cannot, either as individuals or organizations, we cannot hope to succeed in this world unless we rely on the kindness of others, the help of others. We must have Others helping us, guide us through this, assist us, show us kindness, show us the proper way, the healthy way to lead our lives, help us navigate this world as individuals and as companies. When I went to prison, and I've seen this over and over again, even in areas where you never think that you would see something like this. I spent five and a half years, actually, I spent more closer to seven years in prison once I got the, the, the probation violation and everything. Seven years in prison. I will tell you now, you go into a county jail, you go into a prison. I don't care what level of security the prison is. It can be the worst of the worst. It can be a camp. You go into any prison in this country, you are met at the door by someone of your race. I've already talked about that in past presentations. Yeah, you're met by someone of your race. But you're met by someone that, that's also out of the gate. Do you need anything? Do you need anything? Do you need shower shoes? Do you need uh, hygiene products? How about a cup of coffee? Do you need something? So you've got people that, that immediately come in and, and help you navigate your environment, help you live healthy in that environment. All right, you've got those people. Now you've got predators there too in prison. Absolutely you do. But you've got people that that reach out and try to help you. You 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 see the kindness of others, even in that environment. 
even in that environment, you see that. You see people reaching out, trying to help each other, trying to help each other be okay. You know, you've got a guy that uh, maybe his, uh, you know, I've seen guys, I've seen guys commit suicide because they lose their girlfriend. I've seen guys, you know, every, uh, every Christmas is, and holiday is rough on everybody, on everybody in prison. And you see these guys, they, they band together. You know, they know it's rough on each other and they, 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 they get together and they, they, they try to help support each other. That kindness of, 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 of company, of, of making sure that uh, everyone's okay. And it, this, this, believe it or not, this does relate to cybersecurity. It does. It's that whole concept that I've been talking about the past year of it takes a village. This idea, this siloed idea that, hey, we, we need to just take care of ourselves. If we take care of ourselves and if they take care of themselves, themselves, everything's, everything's, everyone's going to be all right. It'll chain together. Everyone's all right. That's not true. It's not. We have to look after each other. There's a reason I bitch about Zell in the last episode, because that's a siloed approach to security where we say, well, if these consumers, if these, and the banks are saying, if these consumers would just, if they would just look after themselves, everything would be all right because we at Zell, we are secure. If they would secure themselves, they wouldn't be no fraud. Well, that's not the way the world works. It's not. You want to be successful. Everyone has to band together. We all have to look after each other. Those victims of romance schemes, those victims of gift card fraud. You know, there was a post on LinkedIn the other day talking about what merchants needed to do to protect or to educate consumers. There was a woman that uh, she walks, she gets defrauded on gift card fraud. The scammer convinces her to walk into Sephora and buy $30,000 worth of gift cards. True story. Buy $30,000 worth of gift cards. So the woman walks in and buys $30,000 worth of gift cards. Walks out with $30,000 worth of gift cards. Do you see anything wrong with that picture? I see a whole shitload wrong with that picture. First of all, yes, I'll grant you. I'll grant you. Again, it's that it takes everybody. So yeah, the victim, the lady should have known something was wrong. She should have known. All right. I'll grant you, we have to train. We have to educate the consumers out there. We have to. I don't care if it's gift card fraud. I don't care if it's romance schemes. I don't care if it's Zelle fraud or if it's cryptocurrency fraud. We have to educate consumers. That's a fact. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. We have to work together. We have to, at the at the bank, if you're a romance scheme, if, if you've got a a teller at the bank, you've got some poor lady or man coming in and they're wanting to withdraw their life savings. Why are they wanting to do that? I've talked to banks that are very good about training their tellers, their customer service reps to be able to ask those questions, to be able to determine if the person that is withdrawing their life savings is a potential victim of a scheme, of romance fraud, something like that. We have to do that. We have to train customer service. We have to train management of these companies. More than that, these companies have to work together to help protect their clients and their customers. Have to, have to, have to. You got to do that because it does take a village to do that. You know, that Sephora woman. Yeah, it's, it's so the consumer should have known. That victim should have known. 
but that victim was never given the proper education. So what else is wrong with that? Well, you walk into Sephora and you buy $30,000 worth of gift cards. That doesn't raise any flags at all with that merchant? Seriously? So yeah, the, the merchant's somewhat culpable. Merchants should have been looking out for their potential customer. Should have trained that salesperson. Hey, more than that though, you get an order coming through, you're buying that many cards, that doesn't raise any flags anywhere? You're going to let that go on? No, we have to work as a village. It takes a village to protect things. And that's the way I've seen it my entire life. When, you know, when I was in prison, one person by themselves, you cannot survive that environment. You cannot. It takes a village. You have to band together. It takes everyone working together. You know, you, you end up with your groups and everything else, and, and you work together to... Uh, to get past the predators that are there, absolutely, but to get through the emotional distress and the overall anxiety of that environment. You know, you have to have people helping each other to do that. For crime, it's no different. It's no different in crime. As a, as a cyber criminal, I talk about this, a former cyber criminal, I talk about this all the time, how criminals share and exchange information, how we've got those three necessities of cybercrime, gathering the data, committing the crime, cashing out, how one criminal can't do all three things. He can't. Either there's a, a geographic problem or there's a skill gap. He doesn't know how to do that. So he has to rely on somebody else to do it for him. Or he's in a geographic area that he cannot commit that specific crime with the data that he has. So he has to rely on somebody to do that. He has to sell the data. So a, a criminal can't do all three of those necessities, gather the data, commit to the crime, and then cash out. He can't do all three. That's why the dark net exists. That's why the marketplaces are there, the surface web and dark web groups, so that that one specific criminal can network with criminals who are good in areas where he cannot, he, he's not. It takes a village for cybercrime to succeed. If you think that cyber criminals are siloed, like, like the good guys are, you are wrong. Cybercrime communities are open source. We learned long ago when I built Shadow Crew, I built it with that express purpose of being open source. We will always share and exchange information. We used to have discussions, believe it or not, we had discussions about that back when Shadow Crew was being built. Do we close off registration? Do we make it hidden? Do we have a paywall? No, no, we need that new blood. We want differences of opinion. We want sharing of information. If you close things off, guess what? You're in an echo chamber. And that echo chamber becomes very dangerous. You, you, you don't grow anymore. You don't innovate anymore. You don't advance anymore. So that's the cybercrime. We had discussions about that. Back when I started shit, what is it, 20 years ago now? Over 20 years. Had those discussions. The good guys, though, are they siloed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's still that individuals, whether you're a company, whether you're It's still like that, all right? And I'm sitting there, you know, I, I'm sitting there watching my, my stepmom pass away. And I'm thinking about all the help that I have had throughout my life, throughout my life, you know, from that English teacher who showed me what a, uh, 
who showed me what I could do if given the opportunity. To the other decent people that I've met in my life, to the uh, individuals and, and, you know, to my criminal associates who showed me that by helping each other, even if it was victimize others, but by helping each other in that environment, how much you can actually do, how much you can get done, how successful you can be. And let me tell you, for anyone who thinks that cybercrime is not successful, you are wrong. They are winning that game by a mile. It is a blowout. And a lot of it has to do with that sharing and exchanging of information, working together, helping each other in that environment. It's got a lot to do with that. I would say it's got, that's the number one thing. That's what I would say. All right. Then you come over to the cybersecurity world, to the good guys side. And, I, and for those who have heard this tell before, Carice Hendrick, you know, I've got I, I, a lot of people, a lot of people put their name on the line to give me a chance, not knowing if I would go back and commit crime or not, but they gave me that opportunity and their, their faith in me was well-placed. It was, and I'm adamant every day to make sure that they, that they know it was well-placed, that they did not make a mistake. All right. And they didn't, they didn't. It took the pandemic to prove it to me. I thought that during the pandemic, I was going to go back to commit crime. But as I've, as I've said in every episode so far, I'm the only fraudster to go broke during the pandemic. And a lot of people look out for, out for me for that. A lot of people came and I relied on the kindness of others. I had people helping me, see me through it. That I didn't go back to commit crime. And I thought I would. And, and I was... I was stronger than I thought, and I had the help that I needed. The reason, as I mentioned earlier, the reason I was able to turn my life around. Yes, I wanted to turn my life around, but I would not have been able to do that had I not been given the opportunity. If anybody out there, if you think that a guy gets out of prison and he's immediately wanting to go back to the crimes he, that, he, that he got convicted of, sure, you hear some guys say that. You hear that bravado. The truth of the matter is, is that when you get released from prison, no, no, you, you, you really want to try to do things right, all right? The problem is, is that you're released from prison with the exact same tools with which you enter. So the likelihood of going back to crime, pretty good, pretty good. That's recidivism for you, all right? Until you finally decide, make that, that decision to change things. But when you make that decision to change things, if you don't have the network there, if you don't have people that are willing to help you, you are going to fail. That is a fact. You are going to fail. I was very fortunate that I had people there that would help me. This is this whole show of it takes a village. It takes a village. So I guess that we'll change the name of the show to It Takes a Village. All right. But, uh, you know, throughout my criminal history, especially in cybercrime, the reason cybercrime succeeded, the reason the platform is as it is today is that we understood him back then. It takes everyone working together to make this thing successful. And even today, you go on Telegram, you go on Dread, you go on the dark web forums, that mentality is still there. Everyone working together is how you become successful. You go on the good guy side. You know, I got involved with this. I, I turned my life around, became a speaker, became a consultant. I'm now chief criminal officer over at Arcos, still speaking and consulting, by the way, just so anyone out there that might be interested knows. 
<laughs> so, but uh, I got over on the good guy side of things and I was naive. Brett Johnson, story of my life, naive in a lot of ways. But I was naive. And the first question I asked at the CNP conference was, hey, you know, bad guys, we all about talking to each other and sharing information. What's y'all's problem? Because you guys don't do that. And the answer came back basically, well, it's complicated. And I'm, you know, I don't get that. At the end of the day, you can pick up a damn phone, call somebody, in, you know, down the street at a competitor's business. But there are privacy concerns. There are regulations. I guess more than anything, there's competitive edges. You know, there's the uh, there's Amazon, who sometimes you know refund fraud hits them, and they don't want to share what's going on with any other company. They keep it hidden. Maybe it'll hit some other company and not us. That good neighbor policy. You know, we'll protect ourselves, and maybe you know it'll go go away from us and hit somebody that's not as well protected. That's the good neighbor policy. You know, you you have the signs in your yard saying you're protected by ADT or Smith & Wesson. A thief rolls by and sees those signs, or you got the big dog that could tear the guy apart. And he was like, okay, we'll leave this house alone. We'll go get the neighbor. That's the good neighbor policy. You send them to the house down the street. Same thing with, these, with a lot of companies. It's a good neighbor policy. You know, we're going to save this information. We'll implement proper security here, but we won't share it with anyone competitive edge. We won't share it with anyone. That way, this fraud or this crime or this cybersecurity problem will hit the company down the street, the good neighbor policy. That siloed policy is actually how that kind of stuff plays out. And it's an abject failure. Truly, it's an abject failure. So that was the first question I asked is, why don't you guys share? And it became, and the answer was not in so many words, but the answer was, hey, it's complicated. It's complicated. You know, hey, ah, we can't we got to say we got privacy concerns. We have privacy. We can't. We can't just talk. We got regulations. We got regulations. They didn't want to say competitive edges. You know that's the truth. Later on, you know, once you become a little bit more ingrained in the industry, you hear that. Well, you know, a lot of them just don't want to do that because you know, you know, it's a good neighbor policy. <laughs> so my issue is is that um, I've spoken about this. You know. This siloed approach to security, and it's because of, I think a lot of it goes back to our, the way we live our, our lives, at least in this country, of being individuals, of only caring about our, ourselves, you know? As long as we're doing all right, we're okay. I ain't worried about nobody else. You know, we, we, we as Americans, we tend to be like that. We do. We tend to be like that. Um, it's not until some true horror happens that we as a nation try to band together. You know, 9-11 hits, we came together as a country. The guy gets his neck stepped on up in Minneapolis. We still came together as a country. You know, we did. We saw that horror of that cop killing that African-American, murdering that man. And we came together as a country and cried outrage. So when the chips are down, we do tend to come together, but it's, it seems to me that it's, that it's rare, that it's becoming fewer and fewer times that we do that. You know, we had the uh, pandemic that now fortunately looks like it's coming to an end and I won't have to look at Dr. Anthony Fauci on TV anymore. I've gotten, I'm not saying he's wrong. Like I said, I'm fully vaccinated. 
not saying the dude's wrong, but I've just gotten tired of looking at the dude's face. I have. I've gotten tired of it. I've gotten tired of seeing that uh, that that woman that comes on CNN. That's the ER doctor that comes on and tells everybody too. I'm getting tired of seeing those people. I'll be I'll be very happy when I no longer have to see those individuals on television anymore. If no, if for no other reason, that's why I want the pandemic over. But the thing is, is that you know you would think people would come together during the pandemic, but but there was so much politics played by both sides that people became more separate during the pandemic. And that's a shame. That's a shame because we as, as a people, the only way that we survive, the only way we thrive, the only way that we really succeed is by coming together, by working with each other, by showing kindness toward each other. And we, are, we, are, we continue to get farther and farther apart from that. The only kindness we seem to be showing these days is toward our own echo chamber. If you don't believe exactly what I believe, you're wrong. And if you don't believe exactly what I believe, I'm going to try to cancel you. I'm, trying, I'm going to try to get you fired. I'm going to try to make sure that you no longer exist, can no longer speak. We used to not be like that. We used to not be like that. And it matters with cybersecurity because if, if we can't work together, if we can't share and exchange information, if we can't tell the truth about things, without fear of being canceled or fired or having a manager come down on your ass. If you can't do that, we will fail. We will. We have to work together. We have to. I've talked before about the, the failure of the silo. The silo is basically the devil to me. And not today, Satan. It ain't going to work. Not today. <laughs> Had that on my desk from Halloween. So it, it, it takes... We have to understand, we have to work together. This siloed approach, I've mentioned how, how it is an abject failure. It truly is, all right? If you look at Zelle, for example, that siloed approach, the bank's saying, oh, you know, we're secure. We are very secure. The Zelle system, ha, you ain't going to break into that. We are so secure. It's, it's, it, since we're secure, you know, if these consumers, if these consumers would just be secure too, they wouldn't be no problems taking that. That's a siloed approach. We're going to worry about ourselves. If they would just secure themselves, everything would be great. No, the world doesn't work like that. It doesn't. Synthetic fraud. Synthetic fraud is the example of that because you've got all these different silos. You've got, you've got the Social Security Administration. You've got the credit bureau system. You've got the financial system, financial institutions. You've got the merchants. You've got all these different silos that even if they protect themselves to the fullest extent that they possibly can, a fraudster can come in and create a synthetic profile, a synthetic identity, and still profit hundreds of thousands of dollars on that synthetic identity, even as each silo is protecting itself very thoroughly. Siloed approaches don't work. We have to work together as a unit, as a system, as a, as a society. We have to work together to protect each other. And I'm sitting there, you know, this is about Pat, remember? All this is... Uh, I'm 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 in Birmingham, Alabama. My stepmom and my dad are in Panama City, Florida. So you know it's a five five and a half hour drive. So uh, you know on the way down, 
I'm listening to my music. I'm jamming to Slipknot and Ray Wiley Hubbard and just listening to music and uh, singing along, you know, not, uh, not really considering anything. But on, uh, that entire trip back, from the time I was looking at my, my stepmom dying, I was sitting there going, you know, one of the thoughts that ran through my head was, you know, it was, uh, how would my life have been different had I been raised by her? Had she been my mom? Now, I love my mom. I do. I love my mom. My mom is a very screwed up individual, not a very good person, <laughs> not a very good person. That's, that's a friendly euphemism for man. Yeah. But uh, I was sitting on the way back. I, I was thinking about all this that I'm talking about today, because I believe that, that everything is interrelated. All right. Everything's connected on this planet, in this universe. Everything's connected. It's, it's, it's the people who help each other in prison that illustrate that need for help. It's the people who, who came out of the woodwork to give me an opportunity to turn my life around. You know, my, my, it starts with my sister, then my wife, Michelle, and then finally Keith Malarski of the FBI, and then finally people in the cybersecurity industry, people who didn't know me from Adam, who only knew my history, who only knew, hey, this guy's a lifetime criminal but who gave me the opportunity, who helped me, who showed me kindness and gave me that opportunity to turn my life around without me ever being able to repay them. And I can't, you can never repay something like that. What you can do is you can, you can pay it forward. You can show them that, Hey, that your faith was not ill-placed. You know, I, I'm going to make it worth it. You're going to know that, uh, that you give me a chance means something. And I'm going to do everything I can to show you that every day. I can do that, and I, I strive to do that. But I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about this as I'm driving back home. You know, my wife is asleep in the passenger seat. I'm driving home, and uh, I don't even know what was playing on, on the radio. But uh, I, I was thinking about how interconnected all that is, the, the amount of help that I've had throughout my entire life. You know, truly, the amount of help I've had throughout my entire life and then turning my life around through, through and the help I had as a criminal as well, but then turning my life around, the help I had in prison, the help, the, the help that I had turning my life around, um, all of that. I'm thinking about all of that and how interconnected that is. And then I, the industry that I live in today, the industry that I work in, the career. I, I don't think I don't have a career. I've got a job. You know, I do this. This is my life. This is my life today. So I don't really think of it as career. I try not to separate my job from my life. I think it's all connected, you know, but uh, I was thinking about that on the way back, you know, how we, how it takes, a, it really does take a village to help each other. And then how we, as, as an industry, we don't really communicate with each other. We don't want to talk, you know, victims of crime don't want to report to law enforcement, whether it be an individual or an organization, or you've got the organization that doesn't want to report to, uh, to law enforcement about the breach because, well, our stock price will go down or, or, well, we were negligent with the data that we're supposed to be protecting in our system. So they don't want to report because of stuff like that. And I don't know where it all ends. I really don't. I'm going to close out the episode here in just a minute because I, Lord knows I have talked long enough. 
But I don't know where I don't know where this ends. I know that it takes that we have to, as a society, if we're going to survive, both as human beings in the physical world and as human beings or avatars or what have you, online or in the metaverse or whatever the hell we're doing, that it takes all of us looking after each other. It takes on the human level, on the personal level online, as companies, you have the tools to help protect your customers and clients and make the world, the online world or the physical world, a safer place. You have the ability to do that. We have to get past that idea of only protecting ourselves, of only making sure that our investors are earning the profit that they're guaranteed. It has to be worth more than that. It has to be, it has to be, it has to be, we have to, we have to get to the point where we're, where we're just helping each other. I truly believe if we get to that point, we all become more profitable in the end. It works that way with crime. There's no reason it can't work that way with the good guys. I promise you, it works that way with crime. They have understood for decades that if they help each other, that everyone becomes better off in those criminal communities. In the real world and in the good guy world, we still ain't there. We still ain't there. We are still worried about protecting ourselves, about making sure we're doing the best we can for our business, and not doing everything we can to help each other. We've got to get past that. Because at the end of the day, it takes a village. Now, that that's it for this episode of the Brett Johnson Show. Not your normal cybersecurity episode. <laughs> but it's time to close out. And as always, I could say, stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. That's a nice tagline. But how about this? Thank you for watching the Brett Johnson Show. Do the right damn thing. Until next time, I'm Brett Johnson. Thank you.